Welcome to the New England Law Review's On Remand podcast. I'm the Volume 48's Executive Online Editor, Louisa Gibbs. And I'm Tiffany Knapp, Volume 49's newly elected Executive Online Editor. The New England Law Review is the flagship publication of New England Law Boston, located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at nestle.edu, that's N-E-S-L edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to newinglrev, that's N-E-W-E-N-G-L-R-E-V dot com. There, you can find our most recently published book review by Professor Jordan Singer on the Honorable Judge Posner's book, Reflections on Judging. It can be found in the New England Law Review online publication on remand. Today, we are joined by Professor Stephen Morrison, a visiting professor of law at New England Law Boston, to discuss his two latest pieces of scholarship. The first is entitled Brandenburg for Groups, which seeks to recover the right to assembly as a core First Amendment right and proposes a test that would protect group activity. The second is entitled The Membership Crime Origin of the First Amendment and provides a historical overview of the World War I era during which time the First Amendment protected the right to assembly the same as it protects speech. Professor, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Professor, could you please briefly give us an overview of the history of the right to assemble during World War I? Sure. The history of the right to assemble during World War I actually starts in the 19th century, when the United States experienced massive waves of immigration, oftentimes from Eastern Europe, and you had a lot of immigrants who had leftist, somewhat radical ideas, and the government was looking for a way to keep these immigrants under control. A lot of these immigrants formed labor unions, which judges and the government and law enforcement agencies saw as a threat. So in the 19th century, the government used criminal conspiracy to pursue these immigrants, these labor unionists, and so forth. Until the World War I era, there was really no substantive First Amendment uh, to speak of. It certainly was in the Bill of Rights, but courts had never really discussed it, never really gave it much substantive weight. It was in the World War I era that we started to see socialists and anarchists starting to leaflet and organize around uh, anti-war sentiment. So the Socialist Party, for example, started to win elections on an anti-war platform, and so the government saw these political groups, these leftist political groups, as a threat. The government continued, as it did in the 19th century, to use conspiracy charges against these groups. And it was a series of three Supreme Court cases in 1919 that really signaled the advent of substantive First Amendment rights. Those three cases were conspiracy charges, so the cases did not involve centrally or primarily speech, but essentially conspiracy to engage in speech. These three cases, Abrams, Schenck, and Frower, have come to be seen as the substantive beginning of the First Amendment, and they're seen as speech cases. But what I argue is that they were actually assembly cases, more than speech cases, or at least as much as speech cases, because they targeted groups who wanted to speak and not individual speakers. Thank you, Professor. So in your answer, you mentioned that the right to assembly really came from immigrants coming over to the United States and forming unions and leafleting. Did this at any point 
transition into uh, U.S. citizens doing the same thing? If so, how did the government respond to that? It's a very good question, and the threat that the government believed posed by immigrants certainly did morph into a perceived threat from American citizens and second-generation immigrants and all sorts of people. So in the 19th century, you had immigrants who were seen as the existential threat. Into the 20th century and into the World War I era, you had socialists and anarchists who were seen as a threat. Those sentiments certainly came from immigrant populations, but they weren't isolated to those populations. Right around World War I and just prior, you had a lot of different groups vying for power and gaining power. And these groups historically didn't have power. And we're talking about immigrants, but we're also talking about women, and we're talking about African Americans, we're talking about Mexican immigrants, and we're talking about labor unionists. So all of these different threads of, say, minority group agitation started to really come up in the World War I era and just prior and uh, presented to the government and, and to authority agencies what they perceived to be a persistent and even larger existential threat. And so conspiracy charges and also at the state level criminal syndicalism charges were being uh, pressed against these groups. So why do you think the assembly right is so underdeveloped as compared to speech under the First Amendment? That's an excellent question, and I don't know that I have an adequate answer. One hypothesis is sort of a conspiratorial hypothesis, which is that speech is the rich person's right, and assembly is the poor person's right. As we've seen in cases such as Citizens United and other cases dealing with the First Amendment and money, it's wealthy people who have greater power to speak. Poor people have to assemble to get their message out there, as we saw in World War I. Labor unionists and socialists and so forth didn't have a lot of money, but what they did have uh, was organization. They did have people. Now, Justice Holmes and Justice Brandeis, who were two of the most important justices during these 1919 cases and in this period, there's no indication that they chose the speech right over the assembly right to avoid giving marginalized people First Amendment rights. There's no indication that they thought in that way. I think there's every indication that they thought that speech rights would benefit everybody and would benefit democracy and that speech rights would be an unmitigated good. And indeed, as far as that goes, I think they were right. And I think the 1919 cases were, were good in that regard. The best answer I can give you is society and the court didn't think about the assembly right. They only thought about the speech right. Thank you. And so with that being said, why is it important for the right to assembly be protected under the First Amendment to the same extent that speech is protected today? As I argue in both of my papers, I argue in favor of an assembly right, but not to the detriment of the right to free speech. I think both rights are necessary and they intertwine. You need to have one to make the other one meaningful. Speech is obviously important because we need to have the ability to get our message out there and to convince other people that we're right uh, and perhaps to convince other people that, that our opponents are wrong. And so speech is important for that. But what we've always seen is that 
speech can really only be effective when it's engaged in in the context of groups. And so the soapbox order on a street corner, speaking alone, doesn't have any power. But the leader of a group does have a lot of power in his or her voice. And if they were on the street corner, if Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or Nelson Mandela were alone on a street corner, they wouldn't have had the power they did. They had the power they did because they had the right to assemble. And so assembly is important to make speech impactful. So, Professor, in your first article, Brandenburg for Groups, you proposed the Brandenburg for Groups test. Could you explain this further to us? Sure. In the late 1960s, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio that a person has the First Amendment right to advocate criminal activity, advocate lawless action, unless the speaker intend that his or her speech lead to imminent lawless action and that speech is reasonably likely to do so. So for example, uh, I can speak to you today and say we should storm the Capitol with guns. Well, that's protected, but if I were on Boston Common and the people I was speaking to actually had guns and they were angry at the legislators and I said that, that might not be protected speech because it's likely to lead to imminent lawless action, and I probably intended to lead to imminent lawless action. That is one of the major speech protections. The Brandenburg for Groups test, however, adapts that to the assembly context. So the argument I make, the Brandenburg for Groups test, has it that people should be able to organize and to assemble in groups until their activity is reasonably likely to lead to imminent lawless action. At its extremes, that would even protect criminal conspiracies if the likelihood of that conspiracy achieving its criminal end is not imminent. Now, there are a lot of criticisms to that, but one reason that I propose this test is that criminal conspiracy has always been used not only to go after legitimate criminals, real criminals, but also to go after politically unpopular groups. And so the Brandenburg for Groups test would protect these groups in their right to assemble. So, Professor, thank you. And say the Brandenburg for Groups test was implemented, could you discuss a bit further how this would impact not only social movements, but unions, and particularly in light of how unions aren't as popular as they were during World War I when the right to assemble really became more apparent? Today, unions aren't perceived as, per se, criminal conspiracies. In the 19th century, they were. Today, obviously, it's different. Unions occupy a place in society that is largely legitimate. Whether they're popular or not, and whether you like unions or not, generally we see them as entities that are acting legally. The government still goes after unions. The Brandenburg for Groups test could protect some union activity that would otherwise be considered a conspiracy, whether it's a RICO conspiracy or a traditional Section 371 conspiracy. Social movements could certainly be protected as well. During the G20 summit in Toronto, I believe it was, a number of protesters were indicted under conspiracy charges. They pleaded guilty, but they protested their innocence, claiming that they were there just to protest. They never rioted, 
They never encouraged other people to riot. They never intended to participate in rioting. So certainly the Brandenburg for Groups test would protect these types of people. More recently, in Egypt, a group of, I think it was 500 alleged members of the Muslim Brotherhood, were all sentenced to death because one police officer was killed. Now, that's a pretty broad conspiracy and a pretty draconian sentence, but I think it goes to the use of conspiracy and the use of group crime models to go after politically unpopular people sometimes when some sort of illegal activity took place somewhere in the vicinity of this group, and the group may or may not be responsible for that particular crime, but oftentimes, even if some members of the group are responsible, probably not all of them are. My one thought that I have, Professor, with the Brandenburg for Groups test is that it appears courts will be faced with analyzing these right to assembly cases on a case-by-case basis. How do you think courts will combat this and maybe try not to have it to be such a wavy line that it could very easily become in case law jurisprudence? You're right that it is a case-by-case analysis, but so too is the Brandenburg speech test. So by saying it's a case-by-case analysis doesn't detract from the test. If we're happy with the Brandenburg speech test and its case-by-case analysis, then we should be happy with the Brandenburg for groups test in general. And you're right, it is often a difficult line to discern between abstract advocacy and something that perhaps should be criminal. There were a couple cases that the Supreme Court decided, Noto and Scales, which purported to provide a line between legitimate group conduct or legitimate membership in a group. You had to, for example, to be subject to criminal liability, you had to know of the group's unlawful ends, and you had to intend to further those ends. And if that were the case, then you could be subject to liability for your membership. I think as we've seen, that line is very difficult to draw, and courts have either been unable or unwilling to adequately draw it. There were a number of cases that have come out since Noto and Scales that, in my mind, have been disappointing failures to protect the right to assemble. And finally, Professor, where and when can our listeners read your two articles? Both Brandenburg for Groups and the Membership Crime Origin of the First Amendment are on my SSRN page. You can search my name, Stephen R. Morrison. The Brandenburg for Groups test will be published in the Lewis and Clark Law Review. So again, thank you, Professor, so much for joining us this afternoon. Look out for Professor Morrison's articles, the first entitled Brandenburg for Groups, and the second, The Membership Crime Origin of the First Amendment. Links to Professor Morrison's articles can be found on our homepage at newinglreb.com. That's N-E-W-E-N-G-L-R-E-B.com. For our print publication, information about our Volume 48, Issue 2 book is available on our forthcoming page. Also, if you missed our paper symposium on Professor Evan Mandre's book, A Wild Justice, look out for our Twitter feed that tracked the entire event. Also, forthcoming with our online publication, Enramand, we have Professor Tigran Elger's book review of the Honorable Judge Ponza's book, A Hanging Judge. We will also be publishing Professor Adam Lemparello and Charles McLean of Indiana Tech Law School, who propose revamping the curricula of law school legal research and writing classes. I'm the Volume 48 Executive Online Editor, Louisa Gibbs. And I'm the Volume 49 Executive Online Editor, Tiffany Knapp.
Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review on Remand podcast.